Welcome to the Lionel Gelber Prize Podcast. My name is Diana Fu and I teach at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. I'm also a non-resident fellow of the Brookings Institution. My special guest today is Professor Susan Shirk, author of the Gelber Prize shortlisted book, Overreach, How China's Domestic Politics Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Professor Shirk is one of the most influential experts working on U.S.-China relations and Chinese politics in the U.S. Shirk, uh, Professor Shirk is the founding chair of the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego and author of numerous impactful books, including, of course, uh, Overreach. So, Professor Shirk, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on being shortlisted for the Lionel Gelber Prize. Well, thanks so much, Diana. I am absolutely thrilled, and it's great to have the chance to have this conversation with you. Wonderful. So, Professor Shirk, as world leaders seem all to be carefully strategizing relationships with China's government, with Beijing, your book is obviously very timely, and the prologue starts with a bold claim that is rather alarming, which is that a new Cold War has begun. Could you please share with our audience one piece of information uh, or argument from your book that you feel is commonly misunderstood? Mm, well, um, that's an interesting question, commonly misunderstood. I think the most surprising thing to many of the readers of my book is discovering that China's overreach, meaning it's uh, more aggressive foreign policy and it's more repressive social control and state management of the economy. It's overreach doesn't just begin with Xi Jinping. It begins uh, back in the mid 2000s with Hu Jintao between the first and second term of Hu Jintao. So Hu Jintao tried was a relatively weak leader who led a nine person standing committee, a collective leadership. And this collective leadership uh, didn't exercise much self-restraint or check one another. Instead, they went off in all different directions and uh, pursued a kind of exaggerated policy that then came back to be harmful to China. But of course, then once Xi Jinping takes over uh, in 2012, uh, he is able to make the case that this collective leadership also was very corrupt, He and that there's a need for a more concentrated leadership. He pursues that kind of leadership and then overreach becomes even worse. So we have two very different types of uh, political institutions all under the heading of Communist Party rule and both of them lead to overreach. But over time, this overreach has become more extreme and more costly to China itself. Right. That's a very interesting point that you make early on in the book, is that while one might expect collective leadership to result in restraint, uh, it actually resulted in overreach. But 
perhaps a different form and different degree of overreach from personalistic uh, rule. For our uh, audience who may not be familiar with the terminologies of collective leadership versus um, personalistic leadership or one-man rule, could you just explain that briefly? Sure. Well, of course, uh, when Mao Zedong ruled China, he was very much a charismatic, a strong leader, the leader of the revolution that was victorious in bringing Communist Party to power. And uh, he ruled very much uh, on his own. He, uh, and as a result, he pursued a, uh, a type of leadership that led to arbitrary decision-making. It was what Deng Xiaoping, after Mao died, Deng meaning the next leader of China, who had been Mao's colleague during the revolution, he said that, uh, that Mao's rule was the over-concentration of power and had led to uh, arbitrary decision-making. So therefore, Deng tried to institutionalize the way the Communist Party ruled China by introducing this more collective leadership, which was the standing committee of the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party, and also regular meetings of the other institutions within the party, uh, especially the Central Committee. So he also introduced term limits, retirement ages, in order to institutionalize and make more stable Communist Party rule and prevent arbitrary decisions like the ones that Mao de, uh, had made that were so very tragic for China, such as the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Right, and uh, she shook that all up in terms of changing collective leadership or dismantling it in 2018, didn't he? And your book writes about that and about the things that you heard from people, the criticism that you heard from the people. Do you want to yeah, comment? My, my book is based largely on interviews. Um, because I served in government in the Clinton administration, and because I've been studying China for so long, since the 1960s, um, I really have a very broad network of acquaintances in China that I've been able to take advantage of and done a lot of interviewing over many decades. And um, yes, I had never heard as much criticism of a leader as I heard of Xi Jinping. And that criticism began, um, you know, even shortly after he took over in 2012, mm -hmm. uh, because he did dismantle collective leadership. So from the standpoint of many party insiders, what he did was dismantle this uh, type of system that Deng Xiaoping had introduced. So he destroyed the Deng Xiaoping legacy and made a U-turn back to a kind of Mao-like uh, system of concentrated leadership. Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of your um, time formerly as Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of State with the responsibility for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia, and because you've had decades of experience, um, not just studying uh, Chinese elite politics from, from afar, but actually meeting in person, uh, and sometimes multiple times with the movers and shakers of Chinese politics, what would you say um, has changed the most about uh, the government system as well as about collective, uh, not collective, but um, about uh, elite leadership in China? Elite. Well, um, you know, China has gone back to a system similar to that that Mao had uh, uh, used, which I, in my first book, I call virtuocracy. And political loyalty is more important than professional competence and uh, and and job performance. So what this means, especially uh, under Xi Jinping, is that she is so nervous about whether or not the subordinates are truly loyal to him or whether they might organize to replace him uh, in a coup-like action that he has carried out this anti-corruption cam campaign beginning in 2013, which is effectively a purge of all the real or imagined rivals to Xi Jinping. So that puts tremendous pressure on the system and uh, basically all the officials in the system are, are competing with one another to survive and to advance up the ladder. And the way they do that is by bandwagoning on Xi Jinping's policies, trying to get out ahead in front to prove how loyal they are. And of course, not daring to report the costs of Xi Jinping's policies uh, to him. So it's a system which really generates this kind of overreach. It's not just Xi Jinping's character or his own beliefs, his own ideology. It's really the nature of this system which leads to overreach. Mm -hmm. And would you say that um, under Xi, he's taken virtuocracy, which is contrast with meritocracy, would you say that he's taken it to new heights and that's the, that's the difference between Xi and previous administrations? Well, it's, uh, it's an important part of it. Uh, and we see today, for example, we just had um, the annual meeting of the National People's Congress. And uh, what we see is that the party, which under Deng had delegated a lot of the authority for management of the economy to the technocrats, in the state council ministries and departments. Now the party and Xi Jinping himself are taking over the decision-making even right down to the micromanaging of the financial system and the economy. So mm -hmm. that's really worrisome. 
and we saw this also uh, in the COVID lockdowns, right? The extreme zero COVID approach. Uh, people, both foreign investors and observers, as well as people inside China, are starting to have concerns about the confidence of the policymakers. Mm -hmm. um, not just their policy preferences, but they're making what appear to be so many mistakes that are really damaging the economy in particular. Uh, unemployment has returned. Uh, you know, there's a real estate crisis. Economic growth has slowed down. Uh, there are a lot of problems that are self-inflicted. Mm -hmm. uh, so youth unemployment. Youth unemployment, right. So uh, worries about competence, and that's related to uh, this shift in authority from the more technocratic parts of the government to the party loyalists. Right, and we certainly saw that even before the recent National Congress in the 20th Party Congress, we certainly saw all the yes-men, didn't matter how badly they screwed up, as long as they were yes-men and loyal to the Communist Party, they got promoted. Um, so I wanted to turn to a comparative perspective because you have seen the belly of the beast um, in terms of the American bureaucracy and the American political system as well, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on comparing the two different bureaucracies and how policymaking really works. Because, and I wanted to ask you this because, you know, we often assume that there are pretty much no similarities between a system like the United States and that of China's because one is authoritarian, one does ha not have elections, and the other one's democratic, and the other one has elections. But do you see any parallels um, between how the two governments work, or, or more precisely, how elites operate? Well... American political system has its own problems, as we've we've seen very clearly over the past uh, uh, six years or so. And uh, but I think they are really very different from China's political problems um, and the way it operates. Uh, but my la the last chapter of my book does. Uh, turn to policy, including U.S. policy. And I think that the United States uh, is tending toward a kind of overreaction to China's overreach. So, um, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is that uh, that we've seen this more aggressive foreign policy, tremendously repressive domestic policy, especially in Xinjiang, and of course the sudden Beijing takeover of Hong Kong that really got uh, a lot of attention from people outside of China, especially in the United States. And so, uh, and then we've had the Trump administration taking a pretty confrontational approach to China and the Biden administration, surprisingly sustaining a lot of the same 
confrontational approach and imposing sanctions, having very little actual diplomacy, negotiations with China. And the rhetoric has been quite sharp as well toward China. So it's no surprise that Americans have become extremely negative toward China. They see China as a more serious threat. And so the politicians, especially in Congress, are um, kind of performing for the public by, uh, with this sharp rhetoric and by all sorts of legislation aimed at trying to punish China. Now, the objective is not very clear. What are we actually trying to do? Uh, I, I believe that what we should be trying to do is to uh, encourage China to moderate its policies, to uh, use carrots and sticks, and you know sometimes threaten to use sanctions if need be, but as part of a diplomatic strategy uh, in order to induce some uh, more pragmatic flexibility on China's part, which of course will re reduce the costs to them as well. Right now, they're confronted by a backlash uh, by the United States, its allies and friends, a lot of European countries, and even countries in the third world. Uh, many of them have turned against China. So I believe that what we need is to get back to trying more traditional diplomacy to see if it will work. I'm actually quite agnostic about whether or not it'll work. I'm not sure it will. I'm not sure that the Xi regime um, has the flexibility to adjust its policy or not. Frankly, I was pretty discouraged by this recent trip of Xi Jinping to Moscow, where he emphasized the alignment with Putin's Russia, even after, uh, even in the middle of this brutal Ukraine war. So I'm not sure it'll work, but I feel that we need to test it. And what kind of carrots do you think might work? Well, um, I think what would work, of course, is reducing sanctions uh, and to, to lift the, uh, uh, the trade tariffs that the uh, Trump administration imposed and that we haven't lifted, even though they're more costly to Americans than they are to China. And similarly, with other sanctions related to visas for students from certain universities and certain scientific specialties, um, sanctions against Chinese companies, which is really kind of a proxy war um, against the Chinese government, uh, in order to uh, prevent them from narrowing the gap with the West in technology. Uh, 
those and uh, and the kind of respect. Actually, I really think that despite his overreach, Xi Jinping really still values um, being respected internationally as a responsible global leader. Now, admittedly, uh, China hasn't acted that way um, as it had previously. You know, if you look at our experience with China from uh, the introduction of the reforms in 1979 all the way to say about 2007, eight, uh, China's behavior had earned it a lot of respect as a responsible global power and acted with restraint. So, uh, and the United States and other Western countries were welcoming China to play a more, more of a leadership role in global institutions and global uh, decision-making. So I think that status, respect, is still an important motivator, potentially, mm -hmm. for China's decision makers. Right, especially respect from Western democratic powers. Uh, if, if he does still care about that, could be one of the motivators. So just the last question for you, Professor Shirk, um, given that you've written about how this Cold War that is brewing is not just in the political realm, but also extends to the social realm, cultural realm, informational sphere, technological sphere, just about every sphere we can imagine. What hope do you have for a reintegration or a re-engagement uh, with China uh, in the near, let's say five years? Well, I guess because of my uh, my connections and my relationships with people in China, I'm aware of the fact that there are not everyone in China agrees with the way Xi Jinping is leading China. And there are many people, uh, especially, of course, the better educated urban population and the people who live in coastal China, probably more than people who live in inland China, um, middle, but the growing middle class, you know, they really are quite cosmopolitan in their views. Now, the Great Firewall and the censorship surveillance, all of these things are making it more difficult for people to get information from abroad. But still, I'm aware of the fact that Chinese society is really quite diverse. People have different points of view and the middle class is growing. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the current situation in China is not really very stable over the long term. For one thing, there's no power sharing at the top, which makes uh, Chinese officials, Chinese politicians quite discontented. Uh, the middle class is has a lot of worries. They're frustrated. So I, I can't tell you exactly what will happen, 
um, the way I think about it sometimes is I can't predict what will happen, but when it happens, it won't be surprised. I won't be surprised. <laughs> I think that the, you know, there's a lot of human agency in the story I tell in my book. It's not mechanistic and absolutely predictable. That was true for the past. I think it's true for the future. So all sorts of things could happen. And I hope that in the United States and other Western countries, there will also be a really sensible debate about China policy mm -hmm. so that we too may uh, devise a policy which is uh, has more focus on diplomacy and is more effective at uh, working with China. So I think there are possibilities for the future. I haven't, I haven't given up, uh, and I certainly don't think we are doomed to an actual fighting war in the future. Um, so I saw how well we managed to get along with China for quite a long time. And therefore, that gives me some hope that we can do it again. Well, that's a very deft and diplomatic answer to an impossible question about predicting China's future. Um, so to our audience members, if you haven't already read uh, and bought a copy of Overreach, I hope that this podcast convinces you to do so. It just came out in October 2022 with Oxford University Press, and it really features what Professor Shirk has said in the end, which is it features the people. Uh, so, so many times we tend to overlook the people for structural explanations in political science, but her book and her experience in China really brings to light how people and agency can really affect the trajectory of politics in ways that are very unpredictable. So thank you so much once again, Professor Shirk, and congratulations again. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs>